You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I did all of the original interviews myself with a $100 a day cameraman missing a tooth right here, honey. Work with what you have when you have it. Welcome back to season three of Black Tea. I'm so excited to be back. My name is Milena Williams. Season three. Yes, yes, yes. One, two, three. <laughs> I'm hyped. Yeah. Hey, Dalton. What's up? Ah, everything's good, man. You know, we're it's a pandemic, so things are okay, it's I guess. still a pandemic. I just feel like last year we were talking about that it's never going to go away. And I think we can actually rest assured that this pandemic's never going to end. I, I don't think so either. I mean, I here's the thing. I, I had you know, my own bloody reservations about this vaccine situation. Let's be real. You know, I'm a black man living in North America and, you know, yeah, pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, they they have a very questionable history when it comes to uh, dealing with black people. Right. So was your hesitancy more like medicine based or was it just like more paranoia or just conspiracy theory, like WhatsApp style? Yeah, yeah. It might be all of the above. I mean, (laughs) you know, I I mean, I'm a student of human history. So, you know, I have some, you know, Nigerian homies and, uh, you know, they tell me stories about uh, Pfizer testing new drugs in Nigeria, a bunch of, you know, a bunch of kids uh, dying. Uh, You know, that those are the facts, right? Uh, All kinds of kids died of brain infections when Pfizer went in there in the 90s and then. You know, as far as African-American history, we know about the Tuskegee experiments, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. It's same, no joke. It's no joke. It's no joke. No, it's no joke. The same Center for Disease Control that we're listening to now, I mean, yeah, they were doing all these uh, tests on African-Americans. And again, we were sort of left there like lab rats left to die, like guinea pigs, you know? Yeah. Well, look at the, look at, you know, what, what was done to black women and how, you know, fertility and all that sort of stuff, like it's just been like hand, handmaid's tale for sure. Yeah, and yeah. so it is. Uh, it is uncomfortable, and it's a difficult space to navigate as a black person. But I must say that, like, I pretty much have zero patience for just straight up vaccine hesitancy, just to you know, for fun, because this is not a game. People are dying. I mean, yeah, a lot of these uh, false theories and conspiracy theories are definitely responsible for, uh, I think, people's hesitancy. You know, uh, for getting the shot and. You know, when I start hearing about, uh, you know, the microchips and uh, it being a pandemic, you know, like, like it's kind of like right, there's some guys right, I know right, live right, in my right. neighborhood and they're telling me that this is, you know, this feels like something that was plotted by some mysterious boogeyman to cleanse the earth, you know, of certain populations and the mark of the beast. And uh, that, that's, that's a bunch of rubbish to me. Um, uh, j- just to keep it real, my mother almost passed away from contracting COVID, right? Um, oh, wow. she, she spent, yeah, oh yeah, she spent 12 weeks in the ICU. Um, so when I hear uh, my brothers and sisters telling me that it's like the flu and uh, it, it's, uh, you know, the mark of the beast, I'm like, uh, get the hell out of here. Get the hell up out of my face. Yeah, well, you experience it. That's traumatizing. I'm, I'm so happy she's okay. Yeah, yeah. She fully recovered. I got to shout out my mom, Perlita Higgins. Um, so it's a real thing. You know, I just thought I'd share that because, uh, you know, you need to be protecting those you love. I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, younger folk that are, you know, somehow thinking they are immune from the effects of the pandemic and uh, they're just going to go back and open up and it's not really like that, you know? Absolutely. And also, you know, the problem with, you know, 12 and under can't get vaccinated. So we do have to stay vigilant. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm excited to, you know, have these deep, serious conversations on the show. And um, if anybody has any feedback or wants to, you know, talk about what we talk about, you can rate us in the Apple store. If it's positive, if it's negative, just don't say anything. 
But we do want to get more into these discussions because this is something we're going to have to be living with, whether it's, you know, lockdowns, vaccines, like we really have to, you know, not to sound cliche, but come together after almost two years. Absolutely. And I mean, when you go to public school too, right, in Canada, America, I mean, what, what do you think you're taking? It's mandatory vaccines. You know what I mean? Like yep. you have these little yellow forms and uh, they say, you know, it's for like measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox. Yeah, that's what you're taking. It's mandatory vaccines. So it's not that much different. Yeah. And I'm sorry, when I was eight or nine, like my, my mom, my, my my dad, my parents weren't, you know, protesting in the streets and trying to kill me. They were just getting me vaccinated. It wasn't a discussion. It's become so politicized. It's awful. Yeah, yeah, it's awful. So, but anyways, <sighs> onwards and upwards. Oh, and also um, we just recently had a federal election that just really wasn't cute. I don't even want to talk about it. That could have been an email. So that's pretty much all I have to say about that. That's right. Both Milena Williams <laughs> and myself, Dalton Higgins, the co-hosts of Black Tea, everyone's favorite podcast, we categorically, <laughs> you know, the election was a colossal waste of time. Yeah. Justin Trudeau, I don't think it's cute that you decided to call this election and spend so much money, excessive amounts of money during a pandemic. I also don't think it's cute that you have a minority government and there's a new blackface picture I didn't even bother Googling. So I'm kind of over it. That's right. Just the mere fact that our <laughs> prime minister has been, you know, guilty of, uh, you know, it's sporting which blackface. Wearing... It's not even if he did blackface, it's which one. So it's just like, I don't have time to go through the gallery. This is what happens when people don't take racism seriously, in my opinion. On today's episode of Black Tea, we interview the one, the only, the often imitated, never duplicated Princess Banton Lofters. Hey, this is a big one. This names. is a big one. That's right. I'm going to get some air horns up in there. You know I'm there, Jamaican. Man. I got 10 names. Mm. That's right. That's right. And we're <laughs> going to go through all of them later on in the show. Now, for those of you not so familiar, or maybe you've been living under a rock for the last number of years, but Princess is the founder and creator of the hit reality television series, Real Housewives of Atlanta, um, which is heading into, is it its 14th season, Princess? We are in, what yeah, season are you 14. This will yeah. be our 14th season. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, the Real Housewives of Atlanta is the most popular show in the Real Housewives franchise, right? So we even had like a Real yeah. Housewives of Toronto, Orange County, all these other ones which I don't watch. Um, <laughs> you know, the Real Housewives <laughs> of Atlanta is the series which quite literally put Bravo Television Network on the map. Now, now one of the reasons we we had to get you on our show is because... This groundbreaking series that you produced and, and created was the first ensemble reality show to feature a primarily African American cast, right? Okay, woohoo! We have to share Absolutely. that, right? Okay. I'm gonna cry. This was huge. Yeah, wow, yeah, history! Right? You made history. Yeah, and and besides developing the concept for the show, um, Princess also helped cast most of the ladies that we've grown to love, including a few of our all-time faves like Candy Burris, Nene Leakes, but we're going to get into that a little later, all right? We'll get into it, yeah. I want to talk to you about a lot of the business stuff, right? The business, you're a boss. Sure. I mean, anybody that looks you up online, they're going to see you're on some making boss moves. Um, Your company, Loft 22 Entertainment, um, which you are both the founder and CEO. Yeah. I mean, you've developed content and concepts for major networks, MTV, VH1, BT, it goes on and on. And you're going to launch a new television series, which we're going to talk about. Now, this is the question I want to ask you, Princess. Now, you were born in Jamaica, raised in Toronto, and then you moved to the United States. So like, so how does a Jamaican-born, Toronto-bred creative end up being the producer of one of the hottest reality television shows on the planet Earth? Mm, if only I had the answer to that. Well, I do. Okay. Television chose me. I didn't necessarily choose 
to be in the entertainment field, right? And I think that anybody that you speak to that had um, something happen to them in this space of kind of the unknown and venturing as the first, which I was the first to do predominantly African-American female cast, it always is like, it just happened. And I think that that goes back to me knowing early on being born in Jamaica. And like you said, I was raised in Canada. I was actually raised in Hamilton, and I grew up um, in Toronto before I made it to, to Atlanta. But all of the things that I was doing prior to moving to Atlanta and finding myself and finding the path that I'm now in really led me to that. So I was a baby entrepreneur. I mean, I had my first business at 18, right? Um, some people know that I'm, I'm a young mom. I had my son in the ninth grade, which at the time, you know, it was kind of like, oh, wow, like, you know, I have a baby and I'm such a young mother and a young person, but what am I going to do? But the funny thing is I was always an entrepreneur. Back then, I really knew that I had to create things for myself. I had to create opportunities for myself. And once I had my son, that was it. So at 18, I started my very first business, um, which was in the beauty industry. So I became an esthetician and I was lucky enough to have a great mentor and somebody that said, hey, look, come on in and hone your skills, work under our aesthetics firm. And that's what I did. And I opened my first salon in a mall, literally walked in and said, hey, you guys don't have aesthetics in here. I'm great at this. I'm amazing at it. You need to have me in here servicing your clients while they're getting their hair done. Who's doing their manicures? Who's doing their pedicures? (laughs) And literally, without giving you the long-winded version of that, I became a baby entrepreneur very, very quickly. And I knew that that's where I wanted to be in my life. So fast forward, you know, listen, I'm Jamaican, right? So my mother and father and people around me were like, you have no option than to be great. You have (sighs) no, there is, we don't care if you have a baby on the hip, your option is to be great. I'm getting chills. That's right. Period, right? Yeah. yeah. So I knew, period, you have to be great. And that was my mindset. My mindset is whatever you do, right? Because people always think, oh, you have to be all these big, great things to be successful. Listen, I had a baby in the ninth grade and I wasn't your conventional doctor lawyer, but I said, well, I'm really good at these nails and the skin and, you know, I'm going to make a business out of it. And it's the same attitude I took when I got into the television industry. I said, you know what? I got the gift of gab. I'm good with people. I know how to listen and make sure that what they're saying to me, I can spin into an opportunity for them and for myself. And that's exactly what television really is, especially on the development side. Mm -hmm. So my long-winded short answer is television chose me. I knew early on whatever I was going to do, I had to be great at it. And that's it. That's, That's how it happened. I, you know, ended up in Atlanta and the rest is kind of history 14 years later. Princess, there's this feeling in Canada for creatives, whether you're working in film, television, writers, producers, athletes, that you have to leave Canada to make it. Like, we have to get mm-hmm. the hell out of Dodge to make it. Can you speak on that? Did you have to leave Canada to make it? Well, I have a bit of a two-part answer to that. You know, again, going back to who I am and who I was born to be and what I was born to do, I feel like I would have excelled anywhere I went, right? So even in Canada, if that same opportunity came or the same type of opportunity, I would make something of it. And that's the mindset people have to have. If you don't have the mindset that you have to use what you have, use the resources you have, 
do what you can where you are, which is a start. I am not going to lie and say that some opportunities that were given to me were were certainly more um, accessible in the U.S., right? Mm. However, the same opportunities that are here are in Toronto, in Canada, abroad. The only thing you have to do is you have to tap into those external resources, right? And a lot of people are afraid to say, you know what? I have this really dope situation. And, and I'll say this for Canadians because, and, and everybody knows, I love Canada. I love Jamaica. I live in the U.S., but I always tell people I'm a product of Canada and Jamaica. Certainly, I feel even more Canada because that's where my uh, skills and true honing in of who I am and who I was to become started. So I say that it's always important to know if you have one link outside of Canada, one link, make sure that you are using all of your resources to the best of your ability. So that if you do decide to transition into, let's say the US, I truly believe there are a lot of opportunities. You just have to use your network. You have to sometimes go outside of Canada, which is the fact of things at the moment. But I think the opportunities are there. You just have to tap into your your network and have them help you along the way. Well, that's great advice. And what I love about you and the fact that we got you on the show is it's the business side because I love reality TV and I obviously love Real Housewives, but it's behind the scenes. It's what the producers are doing. It's when Kenya breaks the fourth wall. So (laughs) for me, this was more like you having somebody with a vision like you was really important to me. But I did want to just kind of ask you, um, not only, you know, did you kind of, you know, develop and you're the founder of Real Housewives of Atlanta, but you also did something that I can't believe that you did. You discovered Nene Leakes, the queen of the franchise, the queen (laughs) of Real Housewives, Bloop, the queen, Uh, um, who just recently left. And I've been talking Mm -hmm. about Nene the whole time on Black Tea, like these past two seasons. So please tell me everything about how you discovered her. And wow. Yeah. Well, let me just say this. For me, you know, I think when you are jumping into something that's a little unknown, it's amazing to have somebody with Mm -hmm. you who believes in your vision as much as you. That was Nini. When I I moved to Atlanta, to give you a short backstory, when I moved to Atlanta, um, again, television chose me, right? So my friend who's from Toronto, Zigazaga, Reese, photographer extraordinaire, Reese, that's my... You know, this kicking it all right. School. Okay, you know who Reese is. Yes, Zigazaga. So <laughs> yeah, Reese used yeah. to come to Atlanta and she was a you know eye candy photographer. I used to travel around with her. And so my very first concept to taste into this industry was because of her and Tanisha and, and, and Jador magazine. They were they were filming something and shooting. And I kind of remember saying, Oh, this could be a reality show. Fast forward, I end up making this little scissor reel which again, I did not come from the television industry. So what I had to do was tap into my resources, right? And say, okay, well, I've never done this before, but who has? And so I literally started to do that. One thing led to another. I ended up uh, meeting a producer in LA and was pitching this reel that I had made called Dime Piece. Really? It sounds, it sounds love and hip hop-ish. It kind of is. It's a, it was about video models. Yeah. So I met this producer in LA. We talked. And so in the midst of that conversation, they were talking about a place called Ladera Heights. What I knew about this producer was he was part of the franchise Real Housewives of Orange County, 
which oh the first one, which was the, the first very one. first franchise, right? And so they were conceptually talking about all these different things. You know, you get in a meeting and it's like all these things start flying off the wall. And I sat there mm-hmm. listening, like, okay, this whatever. And I literally said, oh well, Atlanta. You know, that's where we need to be. This Atlanta has the ingredients to make this franchise. But did you say it's the Black entertainment mecca at the time? Or were were you one of the people that made it that? No, no, no. Because it was the strip clubs, it was rappers. It was, I feel like when Love and Hip Hop came along, it was like, we needed to all look at Atlanta. Well, Love and Hip Hop came along quite a time after Atlanta had already launched, right? Yeah. So when Atlanta came into play or Housewives, what it did for the culture was it, it gave permission for us Black folks to be on TV, yep. period, right? And to be unapologetic. And to be unapologetic. And to be shifting wigs, shifting and wigs, be, and to have yes, one white woman. Yeah, All of that, shifting wigs, living life, driving, mm-hmm. eating, lit. Marrying you know, Bob, having no money, Chateau Charest, Chateau, she ain't shit. Remember that? And you know I love them all, right? So <laughs> I love them all, they're too. They're all my favorites. They're all my favorites. <laughs> but anyways, so back to how we discovered Nini. Um, listen, Nini is Nini. If I didn't find Nini, Nini would have found her way. So let me just say that. She really believed in this. And so fast forward, I come home and I'm like, you know, Atlanta, I'm going to put this together. And that's not how it really works in in this industry. You know, you don't sit Mm -hmm. in front of a producer and tell them what you're going to do and go home and do it. You know, it doesn't typically work So this is like like a dream come true for you. It really was. Well, it was my execution. There was no option for me. There was no no in that statement. It was a statement. It wasn't a request, right? I said, this is what I'm going to do. And what I did was I executed that. And I always tell people, I'm not the first person to think of an all-Black cast, but I'm the first person to execute. And I was unapologetic in my words. I said an all-Black cast, um, even in my interviewing people, interviewing process. And to this day, people will tell you, there were people coming to me saying, what about this lady? And she lives in, you know, Duluth. And I I remember thinking I was very dead set on my vision and pursuing and continuing to pursue my vision. Nobody was going to tell me any different. And so I remember people would say, well, don't you think it should be in order to get a chance, you should make it more diverse? And I said, no, I said, not for me. And if if that's the path that's going to be taken and it's going to shift, then it's not going to be for me. Uh, But as God would have it, it ended up working out exactly the way that I intended with the exception of Kim. And I love Kim, by the way. We're going to get off of this soon. But um, I just think that you executing the vision and just being insistent on it, I think it's really ironic that you actually brought diversity to people that were trying to take it away from you. So kudos to that as well. Yeah, I knew behind the scenes what was happening. But what I what I knew, they could not deny us. As they started to see the women trickle in from the interviews, they could not deny us. They could not deny that we lived like them. We drove like them. We ate like them. We had businesses. We were successful. We looked good and smelled good. And all the things that we embodied before you got a chance to see us, we are now saying, hey, look at these tapes. Look at these women. And that's what we did. And and Nini was my second interview. I knocked on her door and she came to the door. And the authentic, real Nini that you see in the very few seasons, and and still, but the very few first seasons, that was her. We got locked out on her back porch. She was drinking wine, you know, and telling me her life. And (laughs) with her off-the-shoulder shirt. With her off-the-shoulder shirt. And she had a baseball cap on and fatigues, army fatigues. Oh, my uh, God, I love Nini. On God. 
And I remember when I met her thinking, oh my God, I've got something. This show is going to sell. And she said to me, princess, if you are able to do your part, we will have a hit show. And when I was leaving her, which I did with everybody that I interviewed, I said, hey, who are your friends? Because the secret is I wasn't from Atlanta. But no one knew that. No one knew that. So I just kind of was like, hey, who do you know? So Nini introduced me to Sheree, to Kim, who we'll (laughs) talk about. She introduced me to, Deshaun was already on my list, um, but Deshaun, I believe she knew as well. And Deshaun was only in season one. And And what about Lisa? Yeah, Lisa Wu came at the very end of things. There was a young lady who could not be on the show for personal reasons. And um, I just put out a feeler. And, and a photographer named um, Derek Blanks and another Derek. Oh, I love Derek, Derek Blanks. Day. He did all their photo shoots. Yeah, And Derek Day with hair. Oh my God. Yeah. They both suggested Lisa Wu. And that was it. it. It was like she was magic. They loved her. They interviewed her outside of me. But I did all of the original interviews myself with a $100 a day cameraman missing a tooth right here, honey. What? And he did all my editing. Okay. Work with what you have. When you have it, yeah, I didn't yeah. have nothing fancy, nothing fancy. I may as well have recorded it on an iPhone <laughs> with an iPhone <laughs> with a thing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. When did you know that you that you made it? You know what I mean. So you come up with this concept, yeah. you start casting these fantastic characters. Yeah. You're in Atlanta, hanging out, uh, doing your thing. When did you know? What was the sign that you knew you made it? So about three months into the process, now mind you, along the way, the production company started coming down. They were starting to film a little of this, a little of that. And, you know, it was kind of like, oh, this is happening. This is happening, happening. But, you know, for me, I always knew we had something. I just didn't know to what extent. And I felt along the way that my job and my duty was to make sure this happened, period. So I had removed myself from the idea of, oh, this is amazing happening to me. No, this was happening for the culture. This was happening for us. This was happening to Black women, which was so important to me. It was so important because Again, I didn't shrink in the room and say, I want to do an Atlanta version. No, I said, I want to do a Black version. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure at the time I said, I want to do a Black Housewives. No, Black, Atlanta. That's where I live. I'm pretty sure I said that. Yeah, and, yeah. And listen, the producer was like, well, they, they've been talking about doing something like that. In Lad- and this is the Ladera Heights conversation, right? And I said, no, no, no. This is Atlanta. I don't know what you guys are talking about here. <laughs> this, this is Atlanta. And, and listen, I, I never put myself at a level where I felt like I made it, I made it. Even when I got the call and they said, hey, you know, and I remember I was on my way to Cuba with my husband and um, sitting on the plane and did we just get married? We might've just got married. And he said, uh, the phone rang, I picked it up. There was a producer and he said, all right, so listen, something's happened that rarely happens. And I said, okay. He said, the show has been picked up. And at the time we were calling it Ladies of the A." right? The reason for that on a business side was to make it wide enough so that other networks would look at it. And if it didn't make it as a franchise, it would have its own opportunity to be on another network, right? Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. So when he called me, exactly, when he called me, and now I know this, everything I do is tentatively called. And, it, it, and, I, and I film things in a way that I'm able to market it to other networks. And I learned that very, very quickly because I kind of picked up on what was happening. But they had, a, they had intent. And we had intent all along, which was Bravo um, in that franchise. And so he called me and just said, look, I hope you're sitting down. This is what's happening. The show has been picked up without an official pilot. So we didn't shoot a big pilot and do all the... We shot this little teeny teaser where Nini goes to the boutique. I think you've probably seen it if you're a super Sheree, fan. yeah, it's the first. There's only eight episodes in that season, so it was a very small season. Yeah, well, it was the teaser. So in July 31st, 2007, we, we aired a 30-minute little, like... It was a little, Did like... I see that? You it must was episode have. one. I have. Yeah, I think I've seen it. Well, what they did was they put it on at midnight in mid-July, like, oh, let's see what happens. And the next day, Will Smith and his wife were quoting lines from that. Jada? Yes. Wow. Yes. And I met him and he told me. So this is fact. So they were saying like, who gonna check me, boo? Like the equivalent of who gonna check me, boo? It was all of the, (laughs) no, who gonna check me (laughs) ended up in the season. But in that reel, um, Nini was, you know, over at the the, uh, Chateau. She was looking at buying a boutique hotel. And so there was a lot of gems in that. It was 30 minutes long. You got to go back and find it. I'm going back. But um, it it was amazing. And and they said, look, it's been picked up and it's not going to be its own franchise. But uh, the good news is, because there was only good news, um, listen, it's going to be picked up under Bravo, part of the franchise which was to me amazing. You know, on the business side, I did lose a little. We can talk about the business side another time. But yeah, you know, listen, I was like, the train is moving, honey, (laughs) and I am on it. So to answer your question, I don't ever think I've felt like, oh my God, I made it because I still haven't made it. I still haven't totally made it. That's right. See, high ceiling, princess. Your ceiling is uh, super high. So, so even with, yeah, this particular franchise, uh, it, one of the reasons I don't watch, uh, you know, they, they, I mean, we even had Real Housewives of Toronto, you know, Salt mm. Lake City, Orange County. They were so sorely lacking in diversity, you know, and, um, yeah. you know, our show is based in Toronto, which is the most multicultural city on the planet. And the world mm-hmm. is, you know, Steve Stout has a book about the tanning of America. The world is brown. The world is racialized. The world is people of color. And so when I'm watching these shows, Real Housewives of Toronto, New Jersey, and it's just all, it's very homogenous. It's all white. I can't, most people can't relate to it. So I think, you know, you were really uh, supply real demand for this to see, you know, women of color, black women doing their thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that. That was my intention. You know, in the beginning, I I come from Canada, right? And and for me, I was, I was definitely raised in a more white environment, if I have to be honest, right? Hamilton was, you know, there was certainly a handful of of black folks, but certainly I, I was raised in Canada. I never make people think that everybody around me was was black. That's not true. However, I knew when I got here that my job in whatever I did was to represent myself how I saw myself. I'm a black woman. That's all I know. And I knew that I didn't see enough of that on television. I knew there was not enough representation of black women and especially successful black women who may talk a little funny or may enunciate and don't have to be doing all this other crazy stuff that everybody associates at times with Black women. Now, listen, we have that too. We have that too. However, it's not always that. And I wanted to show 
that we are as diverse as any other culture, right? And quite frankly, to me, not being biased, but we bring something to the culture that everybody tries to duplicate, right? So once Real Housewives of Atlantic popped up, all the other franchises of wives, basketball wives, and even love and hip hop. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people have told me that, mm-hmm. that it opened the door for the culture as brown people to be represented on television. The end. I'm forever grateful for that. I'm forever grateful without sounding braggadocious. It fills my soul to know that that happened. It's so funny because um, my next question to you was about basketball okay. wives and love and hip hop. So I'm just like, oh my God. But what I wanted to talk about was, um, you know, just this whole, you know, Real Housewives being the trailblazer, not just Nene, Black woman, brown woman, what you're talking about. Love and hip hop, basketball wives, um, and even some of the stuff Zeus Network's doing, like running the gamut of the diversity of, of Black reality TV. I love reality TV. And, and listen, I'm not here to talk about respectability and saying we shouldn't be doing this or that. But the fact of the matter is, like, love and hip hop is not Real Housewives of Atlanta. Let's call a spade right, a spade, right? right? What, what it's done for Bravo and what it's done for the culture, what you're saying. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to cut the show down because I love Jocelyn. Yeah. I love Stevie J. Like, I loved, you know, I, I love the New York franchise, but it's like, these shows grew from Real Housewives, but did you feel a sense of responsibility to sort of be the proper one or did you just tell the ladies to be themselves? No, I've never um, held that space in anybody's life of telling anybody what to do, right? Like, period. You know, I don't particularly care for people dictating how people should be. I feel like everybody should be themselves. Now, I will say the only thing I've ever done is coach people, anybody really, on the reality of being yourself and it being amplified when there's a camera around, right? Because that is something you never get used to. And even in the very beginning, I as an outsider used to watch some of the things that were happening and think, I wonder if she would have done that if she realized the camera was on. So for me, it's self-awareness. But that makes you a great producer too, because producers trap like like bachelor producers <laughs> are known to do the opposite. So that's amazing. Well, listen, we and we can talk about the actual type of producer that I am and why I chose to be a development producer. To your point, very early on, I realized what I'm strongest at and who I am, right? And what I will never compromise. I will never compromise who I am and my morals to do things that go against that. So for me, going up and saying, hey, so-and-so, you know, I want you to do this because that happens in the television world. Yeah, it's nasty. It's unethical. It's It's not what what I do. So what I did was (laughs) I said, I'm going to leave that to the producers who are okay with that or have decided to make that their career path as a producer. Yeah, yeah. In the, I mean, in, in the in the business too, you're, you know, people know you yeah. as producer princess, you know what I mean? Like that's people, in, you know, the entertainment industry, even with your name princess, you know, because I know people are going to hit us up and be like, is that even yeah. your real name? Where does that come from? Is that a Jamaican thing? You know, is your name princess? Yeah. What's your given name? Is, you know what I mean? Princess. Government name. My God, that's your, that's your my given first name. name is Princess Anne. Princess Anne Marie Banton Lofters are all my names. Amazing. I always tell people, Princess is the only one I got. So if you're uncomfortable with it, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) That's the only one I got. (laughs) No, that's my, that's my real name. It, It is what it is. That's your name. Princess. Wicked. Even, I mean, is, even let's further dissect your name. I mean, there's a princess and then there's a Banton yeah. part. Uh, so when you hear the surname Banton, um, there's Buju Banton, Pato, but then, you know that's Jamaican. I mean, I know a bunch of Jamaican. Bantons in Toronto and London. I mean, <laughs> yes, if you're a Banton, you're Jamaican. All right. And then attached to the Banton part, yeah. there's a Lofters. Yeah. That's your hubby. Now, 
on social media, I noticed, um, let, let's get a little bit into the private life, okay. the private life of your, this public figure here, Princess. Your husband now, like, I'll go on your socials and I'll see, like, you know, you in dental, like, he's a dentist, right? He's orthodontist, yeah. He's an orthodontist, yeah. And mm-hmm. so he's from here as well. He's from Toronto. He's from Vaughn. He's a Vaughn man. He's, he's from, from these Vaughn men's. He's a Vaughn man. Scratch and all those guys are his buddies. He grew up with all them. Cardi is, you know, like, you yeah. know, like fa- Cardinal Fischel. Yeah. yeah. Starting he's from scratch. He yeah. at our house. Scratch is family. Russell Peters' family. Um, and, you know, Dave grew up in Vaughn. So, yeah, he, he went to school there. And when he left, he left and went to, um, went to Alabama. He went to Oakwood. And then from Oakwood, he went to uh, School of Dentistry at Howard. So he's a he's a HBCU Howard. Damn. Well, I was about to say that's so impressive. And obviously, this is because um, you know we actually have to export our men now. We they don't make them like that anymore. We can't date men from Toronto. So good for you, Princess. <laughs> no, I'm happy well, for you. <laughs> I went to Toronto to find one to leave Toronto with him, and I'm you know I'm proud of him, and I'm I'm you know he is in the medical field, but he's my biggest cheerleader. He's the reason really why I was able to be in this industry because he pushed me to not, you know, take no, you know, and and the things that he was great at, he instilled on me and kind of always, you know, even to this day, you know, Dalton, you know, I'm, I'm, I've um, always stayed away from the in front of the camera part. I always believe that the people who signed up to be on camera or be known, that's their job. I never signed up for people to know who I am. It just is a byproduct nowadays of the industry. So years ago, I could be anonymous. <laughs> I was anonymous for like 10 years, which was that's good fun, for me, right? Yeah. Well, eight years. Yeah, it was great for me. I got to live my life in, you know, because it, it comes with a lot of stuff if you're not ready for it. So season one and two, people knew me, season one especially. And, you know, people came for my life, honey. People what? were like, oh, you're putting this. About yeah, like because, back in the day, but like before the internet, how did yeah. they come for your life? Like in album covers? Remember how people used to write disses in their album covers? I used to get hate <laughs> mail to my office. Yeah, I had a, a studio. Yeah, I used to get hate mail. And, you know, social media was just peaking. So I, I wasn't on social media yet, but I used to do an interview and hear people say, oh, you know, how do you feel? Which is why I stopped doing interviews. And I think 2010, I literally stopped um, because people would get me on camera and be like, well, how do you feel as a black woman putting black women against each other? And I'm like, yeah. well, this is Wait, the thing. What? It's never easy to be a black woman. But back in the day, this is like pre me too, pre everything, pre like, and you went through that. But the, with your husband and what you're talking about, like just in terms of the gem that you just shared, it's just, it's about your dreams, but it's also about somebody being able to dream for you and dream with you. That's pretty beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was definitely that. He never shied away from what I was going to become. He always kept, t- I remember even at our wedding, he made this big announcement. My wife's name is going to be in the stars. Look out for it. And the show had already been picked up, but it was just not out yet. We were, we were about to start filming. And so, yeah, you know, it was one of those things that he's always been there. Nice, nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, Princess, I just see him on socials with you. And uh, yeah, we got to shout out Dr. Dave Lofter. Shout you know out. I mean? um, Smile Envy Dental Group. We own our own practice, which is, you know, as a black family, as a black professional, I'm very proud of that. You know, so again, it's not just about Huge. the TV side of things, but it's about building a foundation TV is my fun stuff, but our family mm-hmm. business is our is is because of my husband, and it's because we built that practice, and 
You know, we're five years in and we're strong and happy and proud. And we want other Black people to know that, you know, Black folks own dental practices and medical practices too. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're also working on, you're always, you know, you know a bunch of things. You've actually, you know, put out a book um, about, you know, some of I your did. journey sort of detailing, yeah. you know, sell it from concept to reality. You're slated to launch a new sort of television project series um, yeah. uh, called Neighborhood Talent. And so I can, can you sort of give us a little sneak peek as to what's going on with that? yeah. I can tell you a little bit. I can't tell you too much. And it's funny because I had a call about that this morning. But um, what I can say is that, you know, I, I am from the television world. The music industry as a culture to me is, is just as important. And it actually is the segue for television and Black industry. So it plays such a pivotal role in, in um, our culture that I started thinking of a show that gave people an opportunity who were unsigned and did not have or were not awarded the same um, perhaps um, path to be able to audition for like the big box shows like American Idol. So we literally go in neighborhoods and find the secret talent from the auntie who can sing at church what? to your cousin who can dance her yes. ass off, to all of that. So we literally are going in and handpicking. And that's our way of um, exposing this undiscovered talent uh, instead of, you know, kind of having them line up and come and audition. We go and find them. So we're really proud of it. We have some big names attached and, you know, I'm excited to start filming it. Okay, that's awesome. So yeah, no, Princess, I mean, uh, we want to thank you uh, for sharing some of these nuggets of wisdom because uh, there are going to be a lot of people tuning in going like, yeah, they're going to track you down on socials. They're going to probably slide up in your DMs. Producer to know Princess. More about Producer Princess. Thank you guys for having me. I think this is important for the culture and I'm, you know, happy to represent Canada, Jamaica, and um, and now, you know, the U.S., I guess. Thank you so much, Princess. You're welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so to close out today's show, um, I wanted to talk about, you know, some something that happens in our community. It's, it's something we don't like to talk about, right? It's almost like a taboo topic. And it's tied to mental health. Certainly growing up as a child of Caribbean immigrants, I would always hear stories about, uh, you know, people having mental health issues in the community. And then, you know, back home or in Jamaica, they'd get sent to the madhouse, you know, that's that's what they called it. They'd send you to the madhouse, okay? When you peel back the layers of that onion, you know, I heard in the family, like the place in Jamaica where people used to, that had mental health issues, they had this place called the Jamaica Lunatic Asylum, okay? That's what they called it. Back in the so uh, problematic. 1800s, 1900s. Yeah, the Jamaican Lunatic Asylum. So clearly, you know, in the community, yeah, it's, we sort of tend to sometimes act like it doesn't exist. It's taboo. We sweep it under the rug. We stick our head, in, you know, in the sand or in the clouds. We do not need to be doing that. I don't know, Mel. What are your thoughts on this? It's interesting because I suffer from depression and I've never really spoken about it publicly, especially not on the show. And it's something I've really been afraid to address on the show. But it's a part of my life. It's something that I live with. And instead of thinking about it, you know, something being wrong with me, it's just something that I have to deal with. We've been friends and like working together. You can tell if I'm like, you know, it's there's being down, there's being sad, but then there's an actual depressive episode. So I'm not a doctor and going to kind of go through like the clinical experience that I had, but just from a personal perspective, just having friends, having mental health supports, going to therapy, even when I feel okay, exercising, doing self-care cannot be overstated for me. I kind of need to do them all. 
and just to have a support system. And it can be really isolating. So I hope that um, going forward, I can sort of manage it a little bit better. But I also hope that by me talking about it, people could feel like they're not alone and depression has many faces. Absolutely. And, and here's the thing, you know, mental health issues run on all sides of my family, right? Paranoia, schizophrenia, mm-hmm. OCD, it just goes on and on. So, you know, we need to just be talking about these things, right? Because it, it, it impacts, I'm, I'm quite sure, you know, many of our listeners and just people in our community in general, as it does the non-Black community, um, where, where it, it's, it's much the same, right? So, you know, Mel, yeah. I, I do appreciate your honesty and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, listeners, you know, feel that this is a, you know, safe space to hear, you know, keep it real. I mean, yeah. we, we always say this show's straight no chaser. We keep it 1,000. <laughs> That's what we do. Thank you so much for joining us for our first episode of Black Tea. We had an amazing time speaking to Princess. We want to take an opportunity to thank um, our producer, Kevin Sexton, and mixing by Ryan Clark. And we also want to thank our showrunner, Claire Broussard. Check us out on iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and give us a five-star rating and a compliment. 